Welcome to the IWC, the Irish Wrongful Conviction Podcast, live at NYG. Dear Gwit Barbara. Dear Maru Gwit Darren. Hello, everybody. Let's introduce ourselves to our lovely audience today. Yeah, so I am Darren. This is Barbara. And in the background, we have Lai, Maggie, and Ali. We are presenting the IWC podcast on behalf of Human Rights Law Clinic of NUIG. We set up a whole registry of wrongful convictions in Ireland. You can find a link to it in the description here on Spotify. Great, Darren. Thanks for introducing us. IWC is going to talk about cases of wrongful convictions that happened in Ireland in different generations to different genders approaching different kinds of crimes. As a trigger warning, I have to inform our listeners that this podcast does contain sensitive content. Darren, which case do you have for us today? Today we're going to talk about the case of Norawal. The non-Norawal? Yes, exactly, the non-Norawal. Let me give you some background on our life. Nora was born in 1948 to a large farming family in the Nair Valley area of County Waterford in the west of Ireland. Norawal had a traditional rural religious background. In the aftermath of the allegations against Nora, several newspapers highlighted the respectability of her origins and the well-to-do reputation of her family. Nora's particular upbringing was notorious for producing many young women to provide Ireland's nursing, caring and teaching nuns. Nora followed the exact same path, becoming a nun in the years that followed her childhood. She later joined the Sisters of Mercy while still in her teens. The Sisters of Mercy are a Roman Catholic religious organisation founded in Dublin in 1831. Tasked with instructing and training poor girls distributing food and clothing to the needy and performing other works of mercy. During this time, Nora adopted the name Sister Dominic. Nora continued to move up in the ranks while working with the Sisters of Mercy. Between 1975 and 1978, Nora joined St. Michael's Residential Child Care Centre for children with troubled backgrounds in Capaquin, a town in County Waterford. She first began as a care worker before becoming the head administrator of the centre. For unknown reasons, Nora ended up leaving St. Michael's and the Sisters of Mercy in 1940, 1994. Immediately following her departure, Nora was appointed as a supervisor of the Negru Vosa Orphanage in Romania. She continued her volunteer work throughout the 1990s and in 1996 she returned to Ireland and started to work at the Backlane Hostel, run by the Society of St. Vincent de Paul at Christchurch in Dublin. In all institutions she took part in, Nora Wall was described as a kind, quiet and serious person. In St. Michael's she was remembered as a kind but strict, occasionally harsh and disciplinary. When she left the Sisters of Mercy in 1990, she received an excellent reference stating that she was a caring, kind and considerate person, with an outstanding character. She was also perceived as an excellent professional childcare worker with abilities of the highest calibre. At the orphanage in Romania, she was also described as an excellent professional with impersonal skills and presentation to relate to a wide range of age groups and abilities, being quiet and dedicated to her work. So, what happened at St. Michael's Residential Childcare Centre? What was she alleged to be doing? I will tell you, Barbara, but I will have to warn you and our listeners that her story contains a description of child sexual abuse. So, 
While Laura was working at the Backlane Hostel in 1996, an 18-year-old girl named Regina Walsh reported to the Irish police force who were called on Garda Síochána, but more commonly as the Garda that Nora Wall molested her and played a key part of her repeated sexual assault while she was 10 years old, beginning in 1984. During this time, Walsh lived at St Michael's Residential Child Care Centre, where Nora Wall worked as the head administrator. Walsh told the Garda that Sister Dominic, aka Nora Wall, would take her to the toilet after she wet her bed. After refusing to allow Walsh to wear underwear to sleep, Sister Dominic would lay in bed with Walsh and quote unquote, caress, kiss and lick her intimately. Walsh recounted times when she would sleep in Sister Dominic's bedroom and when she was in trouble, Walsh would face a religious picture on the wall while Sister Dominic tauntingly told her to look for help from your mummy. Even more shocking revelations would soon be divulged when Walsh stood close to the Gardaí she had been raped by a man with the assistance of Sister Dominic on two occasions. In her statement, Walsh claimed that Sister Dominic abruptly came into her bedroom wearing a nightdress, along with 35-year-old Paul Pablo McCabe. Upon entering the 10-year-old girl's bedroom, Walsh claimed that McCabe undressed and got on top of her in bed and touched her inappropriately before putting her nightgown over her head and raping her, while Nora Walsh was still in the room. Walsh also told the Gardaí that Sister Dominic and McCabe abused her two years later under similar circumstances. On her 12th birthday, during this attack, Walsh claimed that Sister Dominic held, her da- held down her legs while McCabe raped her. A witness by the name of Patricia Feeling would later corroborate Walsh's story, telling the Gardaí that she had been there on the night of boat rapes. Jeez, but wait, who's the Pablo guy? I'm glad you asked, Barbara. Paul McCabe was born in 1949 to a single mother. When McCabe was just three years old, his mother brought him to St. Michael's Industrial School in Capoquin. His mother struggled to financially support him on her own. He would later ascribe his memories at St. Michael's as very happy ones, referring to St. Michael's as his only home. However, his, up- his happy upbringing would later take a turn when he moved to Industrial School in Artane, Dublin. In interviews later on in his life, McCabe would describe his time in Artane as traumatising. After leaving the industrial school, McCabe became involved in drugs and moved to South America for a period of time. In 1977, he returned to Ireland and turned to stealing to support his drug habit, eventually seeking treatment at St. Brendan's Hospital in Dublin. However, his alcohol abuse remained a problem. In 1980, he returned to Capoquin. At this time, the institution he had grown up in had been converted to group homes and this is where he first met Nora Wall. Nora facilitated a reunion between McCabe and his mother, and after this McCabe became a regular visitor to St. Michael's. It was reported that McCabe suffered from schizophrenia. Going back to our timeline, in October 1996, both Nora Wall and Pablo McCabe were arrested in Dublin and brought to Fitzgibbon Street Garda Station for questioning. During her initial interview, Nora continuously declared her innocence and was later released without charge. However, McCabe was taken to Dungarvan and placed in an identity parade. The actions of the Gardaí during this trip and subsequent interviews would later be under intense scrutiny as no notes were taken during the car ride to Dungarvan, nor of any of the following interrogations in the Garda station. This is clear violation of the 1987 Criminal Justice Regulations. Regardless, McCabe would later sign two statements claiming he told Sister Dominic what happened the night before in Regina's room and that he had intimate relations with her. Referring to Regina, 
During his interrogation, McCabe showed obvious signs of mental illness, making repeated bizarre comments about St. Augustine, which were ignored by the Gardaí. The Gardaí would later claim they had no knowledge that McCabe was diagnosed with schizophrenia and epilepsy and subsequently released a statement that the knowledge of McCabe's mental condition would not have changed their conduct during the interviews. McCabe made an additional statement about the second alleged attack when Regina was 12. In this statement McCabe claimed that Sister Dominic was present during the event but he was not aware she had held Regina down by her legs. Both Nora and McCabe were only questions on the alleged rape that occurred on January 8, 1990. On the victim's 12th birthday, neither one of the suspects had ever been questioned on a second allegation that McCabe had raped Walsh in 1987 or 1988 when she was just 10 years old. Despite the allegations against her, Nora continued to work with St. Vincent de Paul and upon finishing her contract, began to work with Sir Patrick Dunn's hospital. However, her time there was short-lived as the Gardaí informed the hospital that she was a danger to people and she was subsequently asked to leave her position. After she was released from questioning in Dungarvan, it was revealed that McCabe could not have been in Capoquin on January 8th, the evening of the victim's 12th birthday. He was recorded in a Dublin hospital on the night of the 7th and did not check out of the hostel until the 9th of January at 10.30am. Despite this, in May 1997, Nora Wall and Paul McCabe were formally charged with a rape and sexual assault against the child. But how could they have arrested him if there is evidence that McCabe wasn't in Cabo Quinn at the time of the assault? Well, that's the thing. The Gardaí kind of assumed Walsh had gotten that date wrong, so they officially charged Nora Walsh and Paul McCabe with rape. On a date unknown between the 1st of January 1990 and the 31st of January 1990, upon realising the discrepancies in the dates, the Gardaí questioned Walsh once again. And, on November 5th, 1996, Regina Walsh changed her story for the first time. She corrected her statement, claiming that the rape did not occur on the day of her 12th birthday, but of the day of her birthday party, which occurred some days before or after the 8th of January. However, at the trial hearings, witnesses could come forward and claim that there was no man present at the party. Another inconsistency surfaced when Patricia Phelan, the witness who corroborated both of Walsh's accusations, claimed that assaults took place only two or three months apart, not the two years that Walsh had previously told to Gardaí. Despite these major inconsistencies, on June 10, 1999, Nora Wall and Paul McCabe were found guilty of raping a then 10-year-old Regina Walsh. However, the pair were acquitted of the second count of raping Walsh in 1990, when she was 12 years old, due to conflicting evidence surrounding the dates of the alleged offence. This made Nora Wall the first woman ever to be convicted of rape in Ireland. Both parties were remanded on bail for sentencing set for July. Well, with Wall being the first woman in Irish history to have ever been convicted of rape, I can only imagine how the news pounced on her. Was this the case or how was all of this dealt with in the public eye? Let me tell you, the media was cruel. When portraying the alleged crime, there was an obsessive focus on her role and even personality, way more so than McCabe's. In fact, the media raised issues about her sexuality, implying she's a lesbian and marking her as a deviant. After a guilty verdict, stories related to her sexuality were explored and widely published in the news. For instance, Miss Walsh gave a series of interviews 
claiming to have seen Nora Wall engaging sexually with men and women, participating in a menage a trois, and having a serious relationship with a 16-year-old teenager in her care. Another former resident of St Michael's claims in newspaper they have been invited to join Miss Wall and another nun to bed. Finally, in a Sunday World article, Nora Wall was directed associated with, at the time, the most famous sexual offender in Ireland, with the headline, Rape Nuns Abuse Packed with Smith. Nora Wall was accused of secretly providing children to convicted sexual offender. Father Brendan Smith, sentenced to 17 years in Ireland for serially abusing hundreds of children over a period of 36 years. Later, the association was found to be untrue and the paper issued a full apology to the nun, along with a settlement payment of 175000 During the media coverage, what most stands out is the fact that she was portrayed as a dominant party in the alleged partnership between her and McCabe. This was heavily influenced by Miss Wall's testimony, stating Nora Wall manipulated McCabe, who had a drinking problem, implying that Wall was of most fault in the act. She described Miss Wall as icy cold, evil to the bone. This played a part in the shielding McCabe from the spotlight and placing Nora Wall as a dominant figure. A pervert. Well McCabe was described almost as a pitiable figure, a means to an end for a villainous nun. Nora Wall was also heavily over-described and judged by her looks, her display of emotion and behaviour in court. While McCabe is always displaced as an unfortunate man. For instance, in the Irish Mirror, the difference in description was undeniable. Wall, dressed in white cardigan and cream blouse, was led out of the court behind Pablo McCabe. The homeless man, who suffers from schizophrenia, epilepsy and Parkinson's disease, hopped out to start his 12-year sentence. The same description was to be found in the Irish Independent Journal. The deeply tanned 50-year-old homeless man seemed unable to focus. He turned, reading, sleeping, staring agitatedly around him and sometimes even coming into court drunk. Nora Wall, by contrast, was the picture of middle-class propriety. In conservative skirts and cardigans with her hair neatly cut, emotion rarely flickered across her face as the unthinkable evidence mounted up against her. The nun's lack of remorse or display of any emotion whatsoever during the trial was also a very common topic. Wall's failure to perform as an appropriate feminine figure was displayed across the media. Her behaviour was described as stony-faced, and in conjunction with a detailed description of her clothing and posture, her lack of emotions signalled her as a cruel and cold woman. Wall's claims of innocence and accusation that the victims were lying was also stressed by the media, which was clearly in favour of the story of the two women. Even though Walsh admitted under cross-examination in June 1999 that she was constantly reprimanded for making up stories, Walsh's statement that the alleged victim was lying was perceived as another cruel act of nun for further traumatising the young woman. The portrait painted by the media contributed to the heavy sentence given to Nora. She was the first person to receive the maximum sentence, prison for life, for the offence of rape in Ireland. In contrast, McCabe, who had a prior record and no mitigating circumstances in his favour, received only 12 years. It is also important to remember that before her trial, Father Brendan Smith, the priest accused of abusing hundreds of children over a period of 37 years across Ireland, was sentenced to mere 17 years in prison. The justification was that 
There are some cases so gross and so appalling that the courts must not resist imposing the maximum sentence. The media reflected this across every headline. Evil beyond words, rape fiend nun locked up for life. Analysis of the crime suggests that the combined fact that Nora Wall was allegedly a female sex offender and a nun was determined in shaking society's beliefs and standards for women. Also, her case followed a number of sex abuse scandals in the hierarchy of the church. All those factors seem to have contributed to the ostracism received by Nora Wall by Irish society. Well, Darren, this whole story sounds unreal. So, could the conviction be finally overturned? Do we have a happy end here? Please tell me there is. Wait, Barbara, I will come to this. But yes, doubt arose even before the sentencing of the case. Two events happened between the time of the conviction and the reading of the sentence that saved Nora Wall. Firstly, it came to public knowledge that Miss Walsh had made allegations against her boyfriend stating that he had beaten and abused her while she was in England. She also made a rape allegation against an unidentified black man in London to a newspaper called Irish Star. In June, a week after the conviction, which was not disclosed at the time of the trial, it was known that in 1996, when Walsh first made the allegations against Nora and Paul, that she was going through counselling at St Declan's Mental Hospital after a suicide attempt, in order to help her come to terms with the abuse. During the sentencing hearing in July, the defence argued this fact should have been disclosed to them before as it was irrelevant to contextualise her mental state at the time she had made allegations. Subsequently, it became obvious that Walsh did not actually fully remember the rape at all. She had flashbacks of a rape when she was admitted to St Declan's and it was these newly recovered memories that based her future statements to the Gardaí. And what about Phelan? How could her testimony be refuted? Or what happened in that regard? That's the thing, Barb. It was revealed that Patricia Phelan had made allegations against three different male relatives before. Her father, her brother, and her uncle. And she was involved in another sexual assault allegation, in which the judge found her less than credible. The interviews with the Irish Star also raised other suspicions. One man contacted Walt's family after seeing Phelan's photo in the Irish Star about a false rape charge she had met against him. The case against him was dismissed after all. Therefore, they finally had proof against Phelan's credibility. The defence argued that it was difficult to believe that the Gardaí were unaware of the previous case because it occurred in neighbouring counties and around the same time. In fact, there was a stronger connection between the two cases than this. One of the Gardaí involved in the Phelan rape investigation was also involved in the Wall investigation. He was a member of the Kilkenny case investigation team and he was present when Phelan gave her statement in 1997, claiming to have witnessed the rape. On July 27, senior counsel for the Director of Public Prosecution, known as the DPP, Vaughan Buckley, revealed additional concerns about Phelan's credibility when he consented to the appeal at Crest. The reason given for the consent was that Phelan was called as a witness despite prior instruction that she shouldn't because her testimony was deemed untrustworthy. The DPP counsel also acknowledged the facts that had come to light as a result of the Irish Star interviews, particularly the Leicester Square rape, could not be declared definitely not relevant. The convictions were overturned as a result of this information becoming public. Patricia Phelan later admitted that she was lying. 
Regina Walsh and Patricia Phelan clearly conspired in their testimony, but nobody has ever explained why the DPP pursued the case. The DPP knew all this and she was sentenced to life in prison anyways? Isn't that insane? You harnessed their attorney requested an adjournment or a stay of any sentence. He told the court that the state appeared to have committed a serious breach of evidence, non-disclosure. The state had not revealed that Walsh claimed she was raped in London. They also hadn't revealed that Phelan's allegations against an unnamed man had been dismissed in judicial review proceedings. However, Mr. Dennis Vaughan Buckley for the state said that the Gardaí were not aware of these matters during their investigations and rejected the claim that there had not been full disclosure of evidence, saying that these issues were not relevant to the case. Passing sentence, the judge spoke of Walt's betrayal of the young girl. This was a gang rape, he said. The leader of the gang was the only person in the world who was charged with the protection of Regina Walsh. I don't think I need to say more than that. He sentenced her to life in prison and McCabe 12 years. The hearing was not held on camera, as he said that Walsh and Phelan had forfeited their anonymity to newspaper interviews published since the trial. Justice Carney's behaviour was equally bizarre. He claimed that Nora Wall was the ringleader and she had committed a gang rape on the victim. He sentenced her to life in prison and Paolo McCabe to 12 years in prison. He declined to grant leave to appeal. Nora Wall was the first woman convicted of rape in the state's history and she is now the first person to be sentenced in life prison for the crime. Justice Carney may have had no choice but to pass the sentence, but he is aware of the hidden evidence. What is the significance of the tuggish remarks and the unprecedented sentence? Olive Braden, the director of the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre, welcomed the imposition of a maximum sentence saying it would ensure that Nora Wall was monitored for the rest of her life to prevent reoccurrence. This is unbelievable, Darren. So what happened then? I hope the convictions got quashed. Yes, indeed. Four days into Wall's prison sentence, it emerged that Phelan should never have been a witness at the trial, due to her lack of credibility. On this day, July 27, 1999, the Court of Criminal Appeal quashed both defendants' convictions, and Nora Wall and Pablo McCabe we're allowed to return home. Norwald's case has been described as one of the greatest travesties of justice in the history of the state. The Court of Criminal Appeal in Ireland certified on December 1st, 2005 that Wall had been the victim of a miscarriage of justice. Pablo McCade sadly passed away in December 2002. Miss Wall's family supported her throughout and she now lives with her brother and his wife. Miss Wall stated in an RT documentary, Would You Believe? that the most heartbreaking aspect of the shocking case is that she will never be able to work with children again. She left the Sisters of Mercy in 1990 and relied on her skills and qualifications as a childcare to make ends meet. But I will bear no ill will, she says. She is also taken aback by people pointing and staring at her whenever she is out. She says, I enjoy going to GA matches, but it is very awkward with everyone staring at me. Many hurtful comments were met her, but she also received messages of support from well-wishers. Several of the teenagers she previously cared for agreed to be interviewed by the documentary team and described her as a caring and conscientious worker. Wall turned down a settlement offer of €75,000 in January 2014. On May 12, 2016, Wall's lawyer and Ireland's Justice Minister jointly announced that the 67-year-old Wall's compensation claim had been settled for more than €500,000. The settlement brought an end to her more than eight-year-long pursuit restitution.
Wow, Darren, that was an incredible story. Thank you so much for telling us. We will link Nora's documentary and all of our other sources in the description of this podcast. Make sure you join us next week when we cover the case of John Twist. Bye for now, everyone. Slán go fall. Thank you for listening to the Irish Wrongful Conviction Podcast live at NUIG.